Hello fellow adventurers and welcome back to the Nerd Lab, where we transform our gaming passion into incredible game designs and learn how to nerd like a boss. My name is Marvin and I am an ambitious game designer on my quest to develop a cooperative fantasy card game. For this podcast, my vision is to take you with me on this exciting journey. Together we will explore the secrets of different game mechanics and reach the next level as a game designer. In today's episode, I have the chance to talk to a great game designer with whom I think I have a lot in common. We both seem to be into strategy card games a lot, especially drafting as a mechanism is something we both, um, yeah, we both love. We are also both part of, um, yeah, the same social media groups. Um, we use uh, Tabletop Simulator to digitize our ideas. But our most important commonality, at least for today's show, is that we both set very clear goals and boundaries um, for our game design journey, yeah, especially with regards to limitations and constraints for the game design. However, there are also some major differences between us. Um, first of all, his tabletop simulator implementations look a thousand times more professional than mine. And secondly, he somehow manages to um, yeah, keep the limitations he sets himself. And this is exactly what we want to discuss today, how to design a game with very strict limitations. Please welcome with me Ed Rodriguez, the designer of Animus, the draft building game. Welcome to the show, Ed. Hi, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. Yeah, um, it's great to have you on the show. Um, I'm really looking forward to talk to you. And um, yeah, as a topic today, we... Yeah, we want to talk about setting limitations um, during the design phase and how to yeah how to stick to them, which definitely is not easy. And um, I have to confess that I'm definitely struggling with it myself sometimes. But um, yeah, before we got to the main topic, would you like to introduce yourself and um, yeah tell the listeners how your journey as a game designer began? All right, well, uh, I'd be glad to. So, uh, like uh, mentioned, I'm Ed Rodriguez. Um, uh, I first got started in the game industry. I used to work for a very small uh, independent company called Griggling Games, and uh, I was a developer on games such as Quartermaster General, uh, Destination Neptune, and a couple other smaller stuff that they put out. Nothing really earth-shattering. The, the biggest thing out of that came out of all that was Quartermaster General was a uh, series that's pretty much taken off. It's kind of a niche game. Uh, a very fast playing World War II game that's not necessarily just for World War II buffs. Um, and uh, so I wasn't the main designer on that. I just uh, assisted um, and was involved in the development. Um, and then, uh, but around that time on my own, I, I dabbled in some game design. I've been very active on the Game Crafter, uh, you know, uh, doing indie games and also talking to other people in indie games and making the, the you know, tour of uh, indie uh, conventions and, and whatnot. Um, but through Griggling Games, I got to uh, start, I, I dealt more in the business side of things and the marketing and business side. So being at conventions like Gen Con and, and Spiel and, um, just, uh, learning the ins and outs of, of the business there. Um, but I've always wanted to do not so much be a game designer, but I had like all these ideas 
um, like characters and concepts that I wanted to like kind of get out there. I don't, I, I always like, I know there's a morbid thought, but I didn't want like my ideas to just die with me when I'm gone one day. And, uh, and that's kind of how Animus was born. It was just, um, at, at, I mean, it, this has been like about 20 years in sort of development. Um, it originally started just a, a conglomerate of like just a bunch of ideas. I was always a big fan of, Things that have like crossover appeal, like uh, games that have uh, different genres mixed into it. Um, the video games do this a little bit more often, like uh, Super Smash Brothers and the Marvel vs. Capcom, where you have characters from different franchises battling it out. Then you got movies like the the newer Avengers movies, where you have characters from different movies all together. I always was a fan of that and wanted to do something along those lines. Um, but as a very indie designer and starting off, I really wanted to make sure that, uh, I did something small, something within my means. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I was going to talk about later when we talk about design constraints is well, one of the things that could be a design constraint is your budget and, and what you got to work with. Uh, not everybody can you know, pitch to publishers and maybe don't don't even want to. And that's not really necessary to be a game designer, I, I think. Um, but one of the things that can constrain you is, is budget. Um, but anyway, I, I, I'm not with the with that company anymore, but I've gone on to mostly do on the side. I do like freelance uh, convention stuff. So uh, anybody that goes out to Gen Con or anything like that will usually see me around. Um, but Animus is my first foray really first as like an indie designer with, uh, you know, a product of my own. And um, it, it's an exciting journey. It's been a very long one. Uh, I don't think uh, we're going to have time to uh, go through the whole thing, but I can give you snippets of uh, uh, what that process was like, uh, you know, in, in very short bits. Yeah, that would be awesome because, um, yeah, I took a look at Animus. Um, I saw it in one of our uh, shared social media groups Um And um, yeah, it was not the first time that I saw it. I saw it um, several times and um, yeah, I'm, I was quite impressed of your presentation of the game and um, the progress that you made. So I yeah, invited you to the show because um, yeah, it, I wanted to talk about it because it goes into a similar direction on um, kind of games that, um, yeah, that I also like and that I also develop. <laughs> so um, I also mentioned in, in the beginning, in the introduction, that yeah, it seemed that we have the same taste of games. So um, what kind of games inspired you the most um, to yeah, maybe to become a game designer or um, yeah, to design a game like Animus? Well, more specifically for Animus, uh, again, I, I, I started playing Magic, uh, not when it first came out, but around... Uh, was that revised edition so like 1993 94 um was my first probably game uh, like that and since then i you know i became a big fan of Yu-Gi-Oh, pokemon a lot of trading card games I, i was a big fan of those and loved them and always wanted to do my own um but you know trying to design a ccg is don't even back then i knew that was a daunting task and i knew it'd be kind of foolish to try to create something that Uh, to go against kind of, you know, the, the big three there. Um, so what what I wanted to do, what I set out to do is I wanted to tackle some of my 
own personal biggest problems with those games. Even though I love them, one of the first things that jumps out to me is the the cost investment. So you buy into a game of Magic, like I just recently started playing Magic Arena and you know, had to stop myself from studying, suddenly <laughs> spending a bunch of money on boosters because, you know, it's it's kind of addicting and, it, and it's, it's fun. It's fun, but it can be a money sink. And I wanted to get away from that. Um, you know, I didn't want to ha- make a game where you have to be buying boosters all the time um, and go more like the living card game route, trademarked. Um, <laughs> but I, living card games also still felt too big for me. I was like that that's a little bit bigger than what I want to do. I want to I want to go smaller. I want to capture the feel of magic, you know, and Pokémon and Yu-Gi-Oh. Like one of the probably the thing that sticks out to me when I think about those games is the ability to like create combos and or whether intentional or not, you know, you play this card and sometimes it'll be a a chain reaction of things going going on. And I wanted to this is kind of maybe you know one of the constraints was that I was I wanted to focus on that feeling and make a game on that without um, you know that that money investment. The other the other investment that you have in these games is time investment. You know you got to spend a bunch of time building a deck before you even play. You got to collect the cards that you want. You know build the deck, and if you're a very serious competitive player, you got to like play test that deck and. Uh, you know, learn the ins and ends and outs of it. And um, as I got older, and a lot of gamers get older, you start finding that you have less and less time uh, to be gaming, to do be doing these things, even though you love them very much. Um, and so, again, that was one of the other constraints that I said, okay, I want to, I want to try to stay away from that. I want a, a game that plays very fast, doesn't uh, require a bunch of money to get in, especially when uh, you know, like with Magic, you can have, you could be a player that spends a bunch of money on cards and make a bunch of decks, but then your friends maybe don't and they don't have decks or anything. Um, so like a living card game, I wanted to create something where you just get one box and has everything that you, you, uh, you need to play. And just like you, I was always a fan of drafting. Um, and it's funny because originally the drafting was just, actually an optional rule until I realized how important and useful it could be. Um, I listened to uh, the episodes in your podcast of drafting um, and it reminded me of, of the stuff that um, I had to discover on my own, the benefits and ins and outs of drafting. And so, uh, so those were like the sort of the two big pillars of uh, like, the, the game has to fit within this. It can't cost much. It can't take a lot of time to 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 play. Um, and so, you know, that's that's how we got to that. So it's a game where, um, very simply, the game is um, there's a there's a set number of cards in the box. But when you go to play, you take a subset of the cards. It, from one set, you take half the cards. It's almost like you you have a you open up one booster pack and then you lay those out. And if you've ever played um, uh, Seven Wonders Duel, which if you're a drafting fan, you probably have, um, it uses a very similar uh, drafting mechanic where there's a uh, there's a tableau of cards. They're laid out. Both players can see them. And but some of the cards are, are face down and you're limited in what cards you can you can draft at a time and you can uh, use the layout strategically. So it's not just 
what cards you pick, but in what orders you pick them, because it'll affect what's available to the other players. Um, and then from there, you go into a very quickly playing um, card game. Yeah, that yeah, you that um, is definitely uh, interesting because it's um, your the games that inspired you are also the ones that inspired me, and um, I'm also very much into drafting, as you mentioned, um, and I also thought quite a bit about the different distribution models that come with um, yeah, tactical card games like CCGs, uh, living card games, um, expendable card games, how they're also called, and stuff like that. So, um, and while I was preparing for this show today, um, talking about constraints, I um, yeah, I got the feeling that sometimes um, constraints can also come from um, from players and um, the market itself because um, as you mentioned um, creating a CCG can be daunting on one side but um, mm -hmm. also on from the market side it seems that a lot of people um, yeah are no longer um, willing to spend that amount of money and they are looking for games that are um, fit into one box so um, would you say that um, this uh, can also be uh, some kind of constraint that it comes from the market that you no longer can really yeah, afford to create a CCG for example because uh, the customers just um, want to buy something different oh absolutely I, I feel that's definitely um, uh, this is definitely a huge limitation um, on You know, and, and I would like to see things go more the route of like living card games, but um, it's very hard, especially if you're a very big company, it's very hard to ignore the, you know, the booster pack business model. Um, although I feel like that's, you know, uh, definitely going out of favor. Yeah. So, but before we, maybe before we go too deep into our main topic today, um Do you want to explain a little bit how your game Animus um, works? You uh, just talked a little bit about the the drafting part of the game, but um, yeah, tell us a little bit more about um, how the game plays out. Okay, so it, it's very simple. Um, I, I I'm a fan of like fighting games, like uh, fighting video games, and I kind of wanted to do something like that, but but keep it very simple. Um, and actually, one of the driving forces, uh, I'll get into th this other story, but uh, the way the game plays is, uh, I, I mentioned the draft, so there's initially a draft. Um, now, one of the most, at least I think, one of the more interesting aspects of the game is that every single card in the game is a unique card. There's no duplicates of any any card um, at all. And there's only one type of card. So where you have like magic, where you have like instants and sorceries and creatures and things like that. In this game, every single card is a character. And they, they're a unique character, they're named, and then they'll have a special ability that only that character has, right? Um, there's It's not repeated anywhere else. Some cards may have Uh, very similar abilities, or sometimes they'll have the same ability, but it triggers at like a different time, uh, you know, during the game. Uh, so making it a little different, but essentially every single card is unique. And so what you're gonna do is you're gonna draft, um, I'm getting text messages here. Uh, you're gonna draft, um, uh, these cards. Uh, each card has a type. Uh, there's three different types, which they have a rock, paper, scissors relationship, which just means that when they're in combat with each other, they may have advantages or disadvantages. Um, you have three cards. After you, you draft, you're going to have a deck 
of only nine cards. So the, the draft only consists of 18 cards. Each player is going to draft all the cards or, you know, nine, nine of each. And so then you have a deck of nine cards. Again, very, very small. You have a hand of three cards, and then once per turn, you can play a card onto the battlefield. Now, the battlefield is also very unique where you don't just have a an open field. You have uh, these set slots that you can put them into. You have a you have one melee position, you have these two flank positions, and two support positions. So you have five spots on the board where you can place your cards. This Where, where they are situated on the board determines where they can attack um so the melee guys can attack the other melee guys you can do flank attacks to each other and so forth um so on your turn you're going to play out a card now uh unlike other games there's no resources to manage per se there's no mana to tap there's no uh, ongoing uh uh you know mana to to accumulate you just simply if you want to play a card you can play the card uh some cards will trigger when they when they play um they do you know all kinds of different things um, but essentially you're going to put cards out to this board and you know you're going to want to put them in an advantageous position and then you're going to use them to attack the player so it's a, it's a very much a head-to-head competitive game um, now each card if you ever look at, a, at an image of them you'll see that they have this big number on it ranging from one to three that is like a measure of their power level um, so a card with a higher number is a more is generally a more powerful card or or useful in almost every situation, whereas like a level one card is not so powerful or just uh you know useful in more specific situations. And you would think you would draft your deck full of like the high powered level threes, right? Make a big deck of full of powerful stuff. The drawback is is that the victory condition of the game is you're playing for victory points, and whenever your cards are defeated in battle and go in your discard, the level that they are count against you. So once a player has 10 points in the discard pile, they lose the game. So you don't want to have too many out of your nine cards. If most of them are threes, um, three of them are, you know, killed. You're already at nine points. So you want to like that's you have to take that into account when you're drafting. But um, so to summarize, you're basically going to, you know, draft some cards. Uh, you you build a small little deck of nine cards. You're gonna play them out to a a field, and you're gonna have characters up in forward melee position or back in like a flank position. You can have them way back in a support position where they're out of combat, but they can use their special abilities, you know, to has their friends and things like that. Um, there's some uh, some people liken it to um, uh, well, what's it? Pixel Tactics. Uh, so Pixel Tactics. Uh, if you know that game will kind of give you an idea of it, but um, it's a little bit even smaller than that and a little bit more streamlined. Um, and then, you you know, every like I said, every single card has special abilities. And here's where things get a lot more complex. Um, you know, cards will, will do damage to each other or they'll, you know, flip cards around or move cards uh, from hands or discard pile, things like that. And that's where the creativity comes in in the game design where it was, you know, how to how to uh, make all these cards do something different uh, within a very strict because everything is very strict restrictive like there's only one card you play per turn you can you have only so many slots on the battlefield um, and if you have a full field you can't play any more cards until a slot opens up uh, now you can move cards while they are in in, in the field um, so there's um, some strategy in there and whatnot so there's a lot of like what I call sort of like design walls built in there to kind of constrain 
the game. And then, yeah, I had to figure out ways to design within that and sometimes sort of break the rules a little bit because, you know, I think uh, uh, that's one of the fun of, of these kind of card games is having cards that sort of break the rules in some way or, or at least change the paradigm of like uh, a given match. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's an overview. <laughs> I don't know if I was rambling there, but no, I, I understood it completely. It was a, yeah, a great overview. And, um, I'm really looking forward to, to see what kind of, um, yeah, boundaries and constraints you, you created for that game in the beginning. Um, yeah, because, um, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in it. Um, as I design a game that is pretty similar to yours. Um, I mean, um, what you, what your game does, it, it somehow simulates a team fight between two groups of heroes. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, that is exactly what, what the, the game that I am currently working on does as well. Um, with some twists, of course. And to be honest, I am having a really hard time finding the right, um, battlefield system for mm-hmm. it. Um, the question I struggle with is how to position different combat roles like a tank, a ranged character, and a supporter. Um, and that is exactly, um, what your game does very well. It seems that you have found a very good solution for that question in your game. So just out of curiosity, can you maybe talk a little bit about how your battlefield came to be and um, yeah, maybe what other ideas for, for the battlefield you have tried on the way? Well, um, real quick, before I go into the battlefield thing, um, like... Would you what, what came to mind when you were talking about you know like how to you know come up with like you know the tank characters or ranges and things like that? One of the things that I was very early on knew that I needed to do or felt that I needed to do was that every card needed to be able to pretty much do a little bit of everything. Did it need to be good at it? But it needed to be it needed to be able to do some. So like for instance, every card can do a melee attack. Every card can do a range attack and every card has a special ability, right? Those are the three basic things that you do in the game. And so um, at every card at least has that ability in some way. Now, um, they're designed where they're going to be much better some things than others. But it makes it so that if, you know, you kind of get into a bind, um, you're not stuck with a card that can't go into play, right? Like if you have a card that's like, oh, this card is very good if it's in support position, but you can't get it into support position for whatever reason, you still can put it into melee and it can still do something while there. You just may not be very good at it. Um, and I've seen some games, can't name all the time I've had, but I, I've seen some games where they'll restrict you a little bit too much. Where they say, well, this card can only be played in that position and that's all it does. And they, you, if you can't do that this time, well, then you're out of luck. So here you don't, um, you don't run into those walls like that where you can't do a play. It just may mean it won't be the most optimal one. Um, but anyway, so how I landed into my um, uh, my battlefield, well, it goes to an earlier decision where I decided that I only wanted one type of card in the game. I didn't want to have uh, sorceries and instants and stuff like that, partly because I wanted to avoid timing issues like oh if i play this card and then you play this card which one resolves first i didn't i I wanted to try to avoid that if possible um so i basically made everything creatures they're just creatures you put them into play and you fight with them um and i was 
kind of modeling the game, one of the earliest uh, ideas for a game uh, that I had was the Marvel vs. Capcom fighting game, specifically Marvel vs. Capcom 2, where it's a game where you pick three characters, but you only have one out in the battlefield actually at the, at a time uh, battling the opponent, but you can call the other two to assist you, right, in that game. And I, I thought that was a good idea. I like that. Um, but I felt for, you know, a physical game being on a board, that'd be kind of not too fun having one card out doing the battle and then the others, um, uh, the others, uh, uh, you know, maybe doing some stuff on the side. I said, well, what if I just have them, I have one card that's up in melee. So he's sort of like the in front fighter. And then the other cards will be like a little bit further back. And they can still do stuff and attack, but they just have different parameters. So that's why I ended up with the two flank positions. So um, to give the, the viewers a visual, the the battlefield for each player looks like a, an inverted V. So you have one me- melee position that's up front. You have two flank ones that are further back. And then you have two support positions that are even further back. So like a, a big V. And again, this was the influence from like the, the fighting game where you have one fighter that's out fighting. So you have your melee guy that he's up, up, up front. And then you have the two uh, sort of flank ones on the side. And initially, those were just going to be like, oh, they're just helpers and they do stuff. But then I realized, oh, they don't need to just be helpers. They can just be fighters in their own right there because uh, as a turn-based game, you know, um, you know the, the player is more than capable of, you know, controlling multiple characters at once. Um, and that's pretty much how, how that came about. And then the support positions, just, uh, I just added those in as well. I... You know, having only three spots seems a little bit too restrictive. So we'll add these other ones where you can, you know, those characters, you know, don't fight. So you can use it to sort of retreat your characters or whatnot. And then it opened up the design space where I could say, oh, I could make characters that, um, you know, if I put them in support position, they stay there. They can do like a special ability or something like that. Um, Because one of the things that happens in this game is that as... Um, you have to play it in order, so you have to have a character in melee before you can put one in flank, and and you have to have one in flank before you can play one in support. Um, and then the uh, consequence of that is that whenever a character is removed from the board, they're killed or whatever, and they open up a slot, the slots behind it have to shift up. And it's sort of to kind of simulate that you're advancing in on the opponent. Uh, like for instance, if your opponent's playing a card way back in the in a rear position, uh, but it's causing you problems, sometimes you may not have a direct answer to it. But if you can take out the cards that are in front of it, it'll force it up, and then you can deal with it. Um, so those are some of kind of the ideas that were flowing through my mind uh, over the years. I mean, it took a couple years to actually, you know, develop that. That sounds like a lot of um, interesting strategic decisions come out of that, especially because the heroes have to um, yeah, take the other spot once it is free. Um, I really like that um, design decision, and um, I can I can uh, imagine how um, how this imp- impacts uh, the game the gameplay. Yeah. So um, yeah, let's trend- thank you for um, for giving me a bit of background with regards to the battlefield system. Um, that's uh, that's helpful. And um, I would propose that we yeah, now transition a little bit to our main topic, yeah, setting mm-hmm. setting constraints for yeah, for a game idea, and especially how to stick to them. In um, for us as human beings, it is very common for um, 
yet to complain about the constraints in our lives. I mean, um, we complain about that we have too little, too little time, um, that we do not have enough money um, or other resources. Yeah? Um, and yes, um, sometimes those constraints can, can really hold us back. So um, why in the world should we voluntarily set constraints for our games? Um, what is your opinion on that? Um, I think in game design, especially the newer you are as a game designer, the I almost feel like the more constraints you want to put your, put on yourself. Well, constraints could be, I mean, they could be self-imposed, right? Or, you know, and you can self-impose it for a challenge. Or, you know, like I mentioned before, you might be limited by budget or, or the time that you have to work on a game. Um, another thing that could be a constraint also is if you're... Um, working with an intellectual property. So, for instance, if you're making a, a game that has Disney characters in it, um, obviously there's some restraints that Disney's going to put on you, like you can't do this or you can't have the characters kill each other, right? You can't have any killing in the game, whatever. They got to do something else. Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot of different things that can cause limitations. But I, I feel like um, as a beginner game designer, um, you you want to try to rein yourself in as much as possible um, because it, it, it'll just force you to be, and you hear this a lot, it, it, it definitely fosters um, creativity. Um, like, for instance, it, when I said to myself, I only want one type of card, so how do I get the feeling of, of a game like Magic? So a game like Magic has all these different card card types, how do I get the feel of all of that, but using only one type of card, right? That was the question I, I, that was the restraint I put on myself. And it forced me and still forces me to be very creative um, and say, okay, you know, I want to, I want something that simulates an, an, an instant speed, quick card. So how do I, how do I do that? Um, I want a card to feel like it's very tanky. Well, how do I do that? Um, with, with it only being one card and not relying on anything else or relying on any combos, um, you know, and then you look at, uh, you know, either, well, I, I mean, even could you say like Go is a, is a, you know, uh, has a lot of design restraints. Um, you know, there's very limited pieces and very limited, uh, not, I don't want to say decisions, but, you know, it's like, it's, it's only certain actions you do, although there might be many possibilities. Um, but yeah, I, I think having, uh, again, the newer you are as a player, I think the more restrictions you want to try to put on yourself to a uh, help you, you know, just think more, you know, more focused, um, but also keeping your game simple so that when you go to tell someone else about it or you teach someone else, it's a whole lot easier for them. It's easier for you to describe it. And it's easier for them to grasp it and jump on in. And the simpler it is to learn a game, the more likely you're going to get people to play it and keep playing it. Because one of the other things as game designers we need is we need playtesters. We need people to playtest the game. So if your game takes you know 45 minutes to uh, describe and learn how to play um, as a playtester, you're not going to well, you're not going to get many playtesters. I think uh, that way. I I agree here. I mean. Constraints drive creativity, yes, and um, that is very important for us as game designers um, because um, what we typically do, or at least I do it, um, and I think it's 
pretty very much true for for many other game designers as well. When we develop a game, we essentially um, we we tackle a lot of of problems and challenges. This is how game design works. And um, as game developers, we tend to overcome these issues by addressing them with yeah, solutions we are familiar with. Um, mm -hmm. Probably based on our um, previous experiences, um, on what has worked um, well for us in the past or what we know from similar games. Um, and although this is a great way to get things done, um, having that much freedom um, yeah, can end up... Um, Discouraging new and creative ways of solving those problems, and um, we by do by working in that fashion, we are not really thinking out that the box. So setting constraints really can help to get out of the comfort zone and create something that is um, yeah new, innovative, and um, and unique. And um, your limitation about um, that you only want to have one character, uh, one card type, um, is exactly um, in that vein, mm -hmm. and um, therefore. Did you? I'm curious. Did you did you start with that limitation um, from from the early beginning, or is this something that you that you um, yeah developed over time? No, no, that was definitely uh, before I even had a game. That was one of the first ideas that I had was I, I wanted to like so going back to Magic, I like the idea of the legendary characters, the named characters. Like I didn't want I didn't want generic warrior is out in front fighting. I wanted, you know, Flayed Black Raven, the fearless warrior with the giant sword uh, is up front and he's fighting for my team. Um, theme is pretty important for me in, in, in games. Um, and so I didn't want things to just be, you know, uh, generic, uh, you know, fighters and stuff like that. I wanted like characters to, to uh, you know, be at the forefront. I wanted, I wanted, I want players to care about the units that they're putting into play um if that makes sense um but I, I, want, I wanted to touch on something that that uh, something you said uh, made me think about it like one of the probably one of the most important lessons i ever learned in game design um and i learned this from other uh better game designers um was what i don't know if this is the actual term this is what i call it i call it design by subtraction um very often you can find yourself with a game design problem. Oh, my game is broken in this way. Something's not working right. And often, and, and I was guilty of this, often you would start creating rules, side rules, to compensate for that problem or to fix that problem or anything like that. And you start adding all this extra stuff. And what was taught to me was, well, maybe the opposite is the answer. Maybe the thing that's causing that issue will get rid of it. Oh, yeah, but it's a, it's a, it's a thing that I like. I, it, uh, you know, it's an aspect of the game that I really like, uh, but it's causing a lot of issues. I want to just fix it. No, no, maybe fixing it is just getting rid of it. Um, and for physical or rather a more uh, an example of this is in my own game. Originally, um, the cards all had... Um, uh different uh dual types so if you ever played the, the pokemon games you know the the pokemon they have like uh they have different types they're fire or electric sometimes they have combinations and they have different strengths and weaknesses so my game used to be like that it had all these different types 
And um, and it was a really neat little system when it was working. You know, it's like, okay, this guy is good against that, and and uh, you know, but he's not so good against that. And it led to interesting stuff. At least to me, I found it interesting. But most players didn't. Uh, it led to a lot of analysis paralysis. Oh, you got all this, you know, all this stuff to parse. I was like, okay, this guy's fire, but. Uh, wait, uh, so the water one, that's intuitive, but what about the, the gravity type? How does that react? Like nothing was intuitive. And, and I kept trying to, and this took years. I kept trying to figure out ways to make this type system work. I kept trying different layouts and colors and icons and things like that. And eventually I just broke down and said, okay, I, I'm, I'm in love with my own thing and I'm the only one that is in love with it. So I got to cut it. And it was the best decision I ever made. I cut it to something else. I basically cut it to a very simple rock, paper, scissor type of relationship. And it made the game 10 times better. And it still captured what I was originally going for, where which was I wanted some cards to be advantageous to others um, in the battlefield. And a simple rock, paper, scissor thing, uh, which I was fighting against because I always felt like that was too simplistic, uh, ended up solving it. Um, so... Design by subtraction is 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 something that I keep in mind. And in another way that, and I don't hear people talk about this very much. Um, another way you can improve a game is by trying to find aspects of it that you can combine. Right. So if you have two different rules that sometimes bump into each other, maybe there's a way that you can combine them into one. And, uh, you know, to sort of uh, smooth over, uh, you know, their uh, the reasons that they're bumping um, and then come up with something else that actually solves uh, solves both those things. I'm not sure if that last part made mistakes, Um, but it it was one of the things that I I learned from other designers was try to find rather than trying to create all these uh, sort of side rules or side situations, just try to find ways to combine uh, different aspects of the game um into one and and again kind of like the the type system rather than using all these different ones just simplify it more finding ways to simplify uh this the system as a whole design by subtraction i love it thanks for sharing that with us and um, i also love it when um yeah when when it happens naturally so that um that some things combine into one and um uh, your game gets easier by that i love when that happens um And um, for me, that often happens um, coincidentally when um, when I try to think about how to solve something um, and maybe another mechanism from from my game that is completely in another yeah aspect of the game um, solves the problem for me um, when I by by combining it. But I I do not really have a let's let's say some kind of process um, in place that helps me. Um, so that this uh, combination um, of things happens naturally. So is do you have some kind of um, advice here? Do you, um, I don't know, maybe every one, two, three months go through your game and look if there is um, combine the mechanisms um, um, in a cross table or so and see what uh, can be combined? Is there something that you do intentionally to, to, to achieve that? Yeah, <laughs> it's called playtesting. <laughs> and, and, and not just by myself. Um, like you gotta get other people to play a game, like you know. And and another thing I learned is never assume 
that somebody is going to... Like, before somebody plays it, don't assume they're going to like or not like your game. Just present it and let them, let them have at it. Um, like, for instance, one time I was at a, I was at a college. I got invited. Uh, the college was having, like, a, a tabletop games day, and I was invited to go there and, and show my game. It was, uh, you know, in sort of a beta phase. Um, and, you know, and people were playing and sitting. And... Um, uh, these two girls came by and, and, and I, you know, don't want to say this in a wrong way, but like my initial reaction was like, Oh, they're just looking at it because they're seeing the pretty pictures that, you know, like it didn't seem like it was their, their type of game. It's not something that they'd be into. Um, and just, just kind of like by their mannerisms and, and I had seen them walking around, whatever, but they took an interest in my game and they asked about it and I gave them a very quick overview. Like, you know, I figured, I figured they just want to hear what is it about. And then, you know, they'd be like, okay, well, that's not for me or whatever. And to my surprise, they were like, oh, this sounds cool. Can I, can I try it out? Can we, I was like, yeah, yeah. And next thing I know, they're playing, uh, the, you know, they're playing the game all the way through. They're having a blast. And they also, you know, gave me a lot of good feedback. Uh, some of it was stuff that I, that I kind of knew and, um, and I explained to them why I didn't make certain decisions, but they did enlighten me. And so the lesson from there was you just don't assume, you know, just don't assume, uh, uh um, anything about people. Like, um, uh, every, every play testing is valuable. Even, uh, like I've had, uh, and I'm sure you've had this before where, uh, have you ever had like someone, sit down to play test your game and you it's obvious they absolutely hate it but they're playing anyway but you know um even from that you can learn a lot um you can learn you know well first of all you can learn what problems there are with the game but you can also uh, another valuable lesson that i had to kind of learn was you know not every game is for everyone Right. So like my my game, for instance, uh, if you're a very hardcore Euro gamer, you like, you know, hardcore castles, you know, castles of Burgundy or something like that. You're probably not going to like this game. This might not be your your game because there's some randomness to it. Um, and so maybe some hardcore Euro games may not may not like that. But that's OK. Games don't have to be universal. They don't have to be for everyone. Um, but to to not meander too much um biggest thing for me is and and you hear this a lot is just play testing and um through the play testing either someone will will come up with a suggestion like hey what if you did these two things together um or you as being a third person observer um you know will just suddenly notice things because that, that's one of the biggest things i would say also if you're if you're play testing don't always uh you be in the play test like have a bunch of people playing and you sit to the side and you watch, record, do whatever, and just see how they do. Especially um, if you don't in, even talk to them, you just like, just let them do it and only interject on like really important stuff. Um, you can learn a lot and you'll be able to like, see where you can streamline things. And that's really my process. Most of, most of the best work or best design decisions in the game were because of things other people did or said to me. Yeah, sure. Um, and um, I also um, really like to, to just uh, watch when someone is playing my games. Um, 
But I, yeah, I mean, I also, I also like playing with them, of course, but, um, I, I have the feeling that I get more out of a, a playtest session when I just, um, yeah, watch others playing it. Mm-hmm. So, um, what I would like to, to try to achieve here for, for the rest of the show is to, um, <clears throat> to get the, the listener some kind of, um, yeah, advice or best practices, um, how they could set, um, constraints for themselves. So, um, maybe we can go a little bit through the, through the process of setting constraints for a game. Um, and maybe the first, the first initial point could be, um, when do you set constraints? So I personally do it when, um, very early. Um, so in the beginning of the, of the design phase, because I mean, there is the saying, and as I'm not a native speaker, I might, I might butter it here. Um, nothing is scarier than a blank sheet of paper. Yeah. And, um, by setting limitations to yourself, um, this can help you to, to get some direction where you, where you want to go. So, mm. um, first question would be, when do you set constraints during your design process? Um, usually, well, um, I, I think it, it goes to also the type of designer you are. So, uh, some designers like to start with a theme first and then design game, game based on that. And then others, want to come up with just have a mechanic and then theme comes later and they they design that way um so that might inform you know uh the way you go um but yeah like pretty much one of the first things you want to you want to do is is uh set limitations and you know uh, it's hard for me to remember because it was so long ago but it, it could be as easy as like like for my game saying hey okay i only want one type of card in here sorry okay that's one and you don't have to come up with every single limitation that your game's gonna have um you just start with that and then you see what you can do with that and then you realize okay well i'm gonna need more things i may need some dice or something so then you you know maybe do one or two dice or something like that and then you you kind of expand but um you know you want to just try to try to keep it in reason um it's hard to say because I think, uh, you know, just like every person is different, like every design process is probably going to be, uh, um, a little bit different, but, um, you, you definitely want to like just, uh, you know, come up with, uh, what, like for me, one of the things that I say to myself when I'm first coming up with a game idea is what, uh, emotion or what do I want the player to be feeling? Right. So with Animus, I wanted the player to feel like, yeah, I got all these like cool characters and they're doing these cool things and whatnot. And like, you know, a lot of like, you know, coolness factor. Um, um, and that, you know, so, well, you know, that informed me and say, okay, well, then I need to have cool characters, but you know, okay, now I know that I can't just have generic characters. Like everything's got to be, uh, you know, a thing. And then that's what led me to say, okay, well, we'll make every single card be, you know, uh, a unique character, and there's only one type of card in the game. That's kind of how I ended up there. It's kind of like a meandering process, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it, there's so many different uh, different ways. I mean, you know, some players just say, like, I want to play a game where you just, uh, you know, flip flip dice. You know, you flick dice across the thing, and you want to do, a, you know, you want to land them a certain place. Like, there's, there's a lot of different ways to start, I think. I mean, yeah. Um and <clears throat> you said something that um 
that um, is similar to my to how, how I approach it to my process, um, and that is that you are looking um, to um, to identify what you want your players to feel, and um, this is my first step in the process um, when I start the design process. Um, I think about where the fun comes from, yeah, um, and um, and. I really try to identify what specific aspect of the game should be the main focus. So, w what what is responsible for the fun in the game? What what is responsible for these interesting game states, game decisions, board states um, that you or decisions that you ha are responsible for as a player um, that you that you really enjoy? And um, additionally to that, I also think about what is unique behind my idea. Or mm -hmm. the game I want to to to, um, to develop, and um, yeah, I can I can give you a few examples um, of the game I'm currently working on, which is um, some kind of um, auto battler um, card game, mm -hmm. and um, I wanted to the fun come through creating a team composition. So I wanted to um, the feeling of achievement when you when you find missing pieces for your team composition. Um, I wanted you to, the players to feel clever when they identified open strategies during the draft. Um, I wanted them to feel, get a feeling of discovery um, when they find new team compositions that they might not be aware of before. Um, I wanted them to get, get some kind of risk-reward feeling by um, yeah, going for the less reliable card combos in the game. Um, during the draft, if they take, if they are willing to, um, yeah, to take the risk, I wanted that feeling of reward when they when they achieve it. Um, this is all under the subpoint team composition, and then I have the um, second point, which is uh, positioning and deployment. I wanted them, the players, to feel clever when they, when the when the positioning of the characters on the board is effective and works. How they how they planned how they how they build the strategy for them. I wanted. Um, I wanted also to give them some kind of um, um, way to um, yeah to change the static combat situation. Um, that's maybe something that needs to be done with with spells, for example. So, um, and I wanted them to feel clever when uh, when when one of their strategies works, as I mentioned. And um, I also wanted them to feel clever when they anticipate how opponents um, um, act. And um, yeah, maybe respond uh, accordingly. And um, I also something that is maybe not directly to um, during the gameplay. I wanted for to create some kind of feeling of achievement when they um, when they um, master the learning curve of the game. So in between sessions, they could um, could think about possible combinations of of heroes that would be would make up a, a great team, for example. And um, those were the questions. Um, or the uh, that I asked myself, or the um, the kind of feelings that I wanted to create with my game, and this was the first step. And based on those um, those feelings that I want to have in my game, I then, as a second second step, um, um, asked what uh, what what I need in my game to create those situations, to foster those situations, um, and um, yeah, I came up with some kind of um, yeah vision statement and I got created this by um yeah by by asking myself some questions for example what is uh, 
the core gameplay experience? Is there a gameplay loop that I need in my game? And um, for example, what are um, and what are the core components that I need in my game to achieve that? And um, yeah, a lot of those uh, those questions. And based on those questions, I then um, created the constraints. Um, and I um, I don't know. Maybe it makes sense to talk a little bit about um, the kind of constraints that you typically have for your game. So um, maybe um, I don't know if you have some kind of um, sheet or so where you um, gather all of the constraints for your game. But maybe we can go through some um, some constraints that are typical for games. So what are what are your constraints that you really wrote down, and um, what is maybe typical for other games? Um, well, I mean, probably the most, uh, likely one is just what kind of components, uh, that you're going to be working with. Are you making a card game? Are you making a, you know, are you making something that's just strictly a card game? Are you going to make something that's, uh, you know, board game with pieces? Um, some, that, that's definitely something to, to think about early on. Uh, for me, I, I knew that I wanted to, you know, there was not gonna not gonna be a board per se. It was mostly just gonna uh, uh, be cards, um, and so you know that that's you know that's kind of a limitation there, uh, self-imposed. Um, uh, another thing that limited uh, what I was gonna do was, um, and this wasn't actually really imposed by me. Um, I kept thinking that if I never got to publish this game through a publisher or or even if I ever never went to Kickstarter that I, I could still publish it through like something like the Game Crafter. And Game Crafter has not really limitations, but they have like set number of cards per sheet that they print out and stuff like that. So uh, I designed actually the game around, uh, you know, their print process there. So that's that's how I ended up with the, the number of cards in the game are actually uh, directly uh, uh, from that. Um, um, I'm very bad at writing things down. Uh, most game designers will have like all these, you know, long design documents. And um, I very much go by feel. Uh, I, I mean, I do write some stuff down. Uh, especially during during play testing and all that, but um, when I'm initially coming up with a design, I and, and this is just me, and I wouldn't say that this is the right way to go. I just kind of let my mind wander. I try to imagine, you know, imagine the game out and what like like you, like you said, what kind of gameplay loop I wanna I wanna feel, and then uh, once I kind of have a general idea of what where I wanna go, then I'll, then I may start. Uh, writing some stuff down, but um, and and of course, always it's gonna be a very very terrible game uh, until you actually play test it and you get some play testers out. Um, but often, um, you know, the, the you know watching people play and maybe struggle through a bad game design, um, you know, again, there's there's value in that, and you see, okay, well, you know, that thing that they don't like there, I'm not gonna do that. Uh, and maybe the game doesn't need to do that at all. And and it's going back a little bit to what you said about um, like designing the game towards for you know what feeling you want 
out of the player. I'm almost always wrong about that. Like I, I come up with ideas like, okay, I'm going to make this bidding game and it's going to be about set collecting. And I want the players to feel clever about, you know, okay, they bid and they got, you know, they got this clever set of, of items that, you know, work together to do stuff. And then I play tested this game with people and they enjoyed that. Yes. But the, they had more fun in the actual bidding. Um, it was, it was the, the theme of the game was bidding for storage options, like the, the show storage wars and people liked actually feeling like they were getting into character and the actual bidding and calling stuff out. And they kind of weren't even paying that much attention to what they were bidding for. Just the, uh, you know, the loud, uh, 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 calling out of bids and, and bidding against each other. That was the fun for most people. And I said, okay, well. That's not necessarily what I went out to do, but hey, this is cool. So let's let's go with it. So I think also being open to letting your game go in a direction that you didn't really attend it to um, is also a valuable thing. Like, you know, uh, don't don't always have a hard no to yourself either. Right. You know, you're trying to constrain yourself, but also you want to be open to you know the game going in the direction that you didn't necessarily intend it but maybe it makes it for a better game absolutely absolutely and um yeah i also um i also like that because uh, yeah most that's most something that most game designers say that the game ended in a spot that they didn't plan for in the beginning mm -hmm. um And so you you need to be open and you do not, you, you you cannot um, constrain yourself too much um But I also also have some um, some some points on my list of the um, of examples of uh, of constraints. Um, sure. You mentioned most of them. Um, <clears throat> you also um, already talked in the beginning about um, there can be an intellectual property you design for, and that might constrain yourself. Um, you might design for a specific um, publishing method, like you like you said, um, mm -hmm. the game crafter, for example. It could also be that you. Um, Designed for a specific publisher, you want to um, you want to um, yeah publish your game through. They ha all, mm -hmm. most of them have um, very strict um, design um, constraints on their websites um, yep. that you can look look to, and they might, they might that might help you to um, um, to to come up with your first um, constraints. Um, then another constraint could be that uh, the game has a certain mechanism for me it was very very sure from the very beginning that my game will be a drafting game for example that could also mm -hmm. um, be the, yeah, the, the um, one, one constraint for you the theme also can be can be can be constrained that if you know that your game is a um, is a cowboy alien game i don't know something like that something that you want to uh, want to explore that can can be a constraint for 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 some kind of mechanism that you that you can um, use in your game Then also, um, what I also like is um, complexity. You should you should um, really think about who your game is for and what kind of um, games those players play. So how complex can it be? How many components can it have? Um, how long can a game be? How many players um, should be able to um, to play your game? And how old should these players be? All of those are information that I write down in the beginning. Some of, to some of them, I'm more strict than others um so for example i might change the the number of players in the end if i see there's that there's also a good three or four player variant of my of my two player game um i'm willing to to change here but to some i'm very strict for example um 
I know that this will be a drafting game and it will stay a drafting game. I might change the the way players draft, but um, at the end I want uh, want it to be a drafting game because that's what I as a game designer want want it to be, and um, I think it it is responsible for the um, for the kind of fun that I want to create with my game. Mm-hmm. And, something yeah. you reminded me of. Oh, gone, gone. No, please, please. Um, you you reminded me of something. I, I forgot what it was that you you, you said, but um, I, I think it was when you were talk, talking about publishers. Like, oh, you you were mentioning looking at a publisher site and seeing what kind of games that that, and it made me think that you shouldn't ever um, you shouldn't not make a game because you think it's too niche of an audience, right? You, you know. If if you have a weird idea that appeals to like maybe only a couple of people, do it. Uh, I know the the JT uh, JT Smith from the Grain Crafter. Some of the games he creates, he only creates just for his friends. Like there's there's these five people in the world that he knows will play this game, and that's it. And that's what he designs it for. Um, but like, uh, give me a very very quick story. Um, a good friend of mine, um, AJ from uh, Van Ryder Games. Well, many, many years ago, when he first started, his first game, he was going to make a zombie game that was a solo game. And I remember when he was talking about the concept, um, I thought it was kind of cool. But at the same time, I was like, um, and I was a little bit naive. I was like, well, who's going to play a solo game? It's a solo, like, nobody plays board games by themselves. I mean, they do, but, you know, more often than not, you know, and I, and I kept trying to push him towards you know, making it cooperative. Well, he's like, no, 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 I want to make a solo game. Now, fast forward a few years later, he's got several solo games on this boat that have done very, very well. And surprise to me, there's this whole community of gamers that look for solo games. And so he not really carved out a niche for himself, but he found, you know, this little niche and found some success there which has led to other stuff now he's making all kinds of games um but you know it just started with just having an idea of like ah this this little idea that i want to do let me run with it and see where it goes um so you know uh and, and also like uh uh there's a company smirk and dagger right a lot of their games the reason they were called smirk and dagger most of their games were very take that kind of games uh, you know, uh, that would uh, make most Euro gamers cringe. But they were very take that games, very sort of mean games, uh, you know, beat up on each other. And in, in talking with Kurt, he said that as they were looking at, you know, they would talk with, with game designers and game designers would present games to them. Every once in a while, they would see a game that would be like, man, I would like to publish this game, but it doesn't really fit with, what my company is my company is a you know take that game but this guy has this really cool you know euro game or this cool drafting game it doesn't really fit thing so what smirk and dagger did was they just changed up they made a whole division uh now they call it uh they have a whole division now they call smirk and laughter where they make like these uh like party games that are not take that so you know if if you think there's a publisher that you may want to work with and you have an idea you know it's not a bad idea to still try and talk to them anyway, because you never know what, what might happen. Um, you know, the, the, the worst they can do is say no. Yeah, absolutely. And I really like your, um, your example of the, the solo game market here, because what, um, what the designer did here is he tried something new 
And mm-hmm. at that time, maybe there wasn't a market for it. Then. Maybe the idea was even unique at that time. I don't know. And um, what it did, definitely did, and um, that is something that you should try to add to your constraints as well, I mean the listeners here, um, is to try um, to challenge yourself. Because uh, to get out of your comfort zone and to create something that is... Um, unique that can be a hook for your game later that might be um, might help you to to market your game and um, I, a good very good example here is um, is keyforge for, by the way um, mm-hmm. for keyforge um, i'm pretty sure that one game constraint was um, that every deck is unique i'm pretty sure they had the this idea from the very beginning yeah and um, this is a constraint that um, that has a lot of um, implications for the entire game process uh, the design process and um yeah it it created a lot of challenges for for the for the game designers and um they need, needed to come up with new ideas new technology even to to solve those mm-hmm. and for me for my game for example it is um the new unique aspect is um that the combat um should be automatic and um that is also challenging me quite a bit because a lot of fun in games comes from um Deciding um, which at- unit attacks which other unit or wh- wh- who which unit is um, supposed to um, to attack and which one to defend and stuff like that. And if, if all of this um, is automatic and taken away from the player, um, something is missing. And um, I'm still struggling to find um, ways to um, to overcome this and to find new ideas how um, how I could fill that hole. But it it. It drives creativity. It it, um, it challenges me, and I think that's a good thing. And you should come up with something similar as um, as that. Well, and, and also kind of on the flip side of the whole thing is um, look at examples of what happens when someone doesn't have constraint. Uh, and although this is not board game related, uh, I, I think a lot of people point to this as example is uh where you look at the Star Wars movies um and um you know the first ori- especially the first original movie uh George Lucas had to film this with a lot of constraints a lot of budgetary constraints and materials and things like that um and then you know he came out with a fantastic movie but then you know decades later uh when he had a chance to do the prequels uh it seems like there was no one to tell him no, like he had no limitations, like whatever he could come up with, whatever idea he came up with, he could throw it out there. Um, and especially with a lot of the technology he developed, it was very easy to throw it out there. Oh, I want this alien. I want a, a pod racing scene or anything like that. And so um, not everything was the best that it could have been. Whereas again, you look back at his first movie when he had a lot more, um, constraint. It may not seem like it, but he had a lot more constraints. He came out with a much more memorable movie than, say, something like The Phantom Menace, which had, you know, a lot of extraneous stuff um, and or, you know, plot holes. Um, you can also look. Uh, there's a there's a uh, there's a YouTube channel. I don't remember the name of the YouTube channel, but there's a there's a guy who makes a series on YouTube called What Happened, and he talks about. Uh, different video game projects that went really off the rails, um, you know, from very big companies with very big budgets. And it's very good examples of what happens when the designers don't have constraints or they have too much freedom to create stuff or you have too many people involved. 
Um, and it's definitely a, a series I recommend uh, board gamers to to take a look at because again, it, it really drives home that idea. It's like oh, you you gotta have some kind of boundaries. You gotta have um, uh, you know some direction of, of which way you're going, and you don't you don't really design in a vacuum. Um, I mean, you can, but um, again, most of the things that have made my game what it is were mostly because of other people, was people playing it, you know, uh, ideas that were thrown uh, my way, um, you know, just watching other people, you know, uh, you know, react. You know, and, and, and it's not always even uh, gameplay stuff. Like uh, sometimes, uh, uh, like for my game, we needed to find a way to track uh, points throughout the game and the points are written on the cards and I noticed that when the players were playtesting the game they would always align the cards a certain way right they were line them sorry and I realized I said oh the way they're putting it seems to come naturally well if I put the number in that little corner there with the where they're lining it up they'll be able to add up all the numbers really quickly so that little thing that they did, and it was very unintentional. They were just, it was just kind of a natural way that people were laying down the cards, uh, informed me on, on a graphic design decision for the game. It's like, okay, uh, that's where I should put, you know, that thing there, you know, whatever. Um, so the point being that, uh, you also take a look at, you know, examples of what happens when you don't have constraints. Uh, things can go <laughs> really wild and haywire. And it happens with, with like Kickstarters, just on Kickstarter campaigns, when they start adding all these stretch goals and all this stuff without really having thought it out through because mm. they're getting more and more backers. Sure. I, I agree on that. And you you can see it in, in many different um, areas. I mean, movies, if you see, um, as you mentioned, if you see some kind of um, sequels, or but also games digital games um, that are very successful and then the sequel um, has a lot of money and is maybe less successful because uh, there are not um, no new constraints um, on no constraints at all for the for the game anymore mm -hmm. and um, i would i would like to mention one more thing here before we maybe yeah come to an end we, we talk all already for over an hour um, <laughs> and it's a great discussion but i wanted to, ma to mention one more thing here um It is related to constraints, but not directly to setting constraints for you as a game designer for your game. Um, it's a little method that I use um, from now and then, um, it, which is called Pomodoro method. And um, that is uh, something that you can use um, to, to, to achieve a success in a very small amount of time because you, you set uh, some kind of timer, this This typically I use something like 20 or 30 minutes, um, and I, which is a constraint, um, and then I um, ask myself one question during that time, and something or maybe one design challenge that I want to tackle during that time, and I have only these 20 or 30 minutes to solve this problem, um, and then I go into a deep working mode. Um, I put my, 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 my mobile away, I um, turn my computer off if I don't need it, um, and deeply work on that one question or design challenge. And when I, once I have solved it, or after the 30 minutes, um, my, um, my, my, timer, my timer rings, and um, I then take some kind of 
break, maybe five minutes to, to get a coffee or to yeah check my, um, my social media or email or whatsoever. And then I set a new Pomodoro timer for the next 20 or 30 minutes. So I'm breaking down things into smaller pieces. Um, and I think this is also something that is related to, to, yeah, to constraints, which I wanted to mention here as a, um, yeah, as a, as a little, little tip here that, um, that might be helpful for someone out there. And then that's interesting. I never put a, a name to that, uh, but I kind of do the same thing. Uh, but it's not, it's not quite as structured as many things about me are not very structured. Um, you, sometimes, uh, often when I'm driving, like I'm driving to work, I'll usually listen to, uh, either I'm listening to an audiobook or just listening to music. But every once in a while, I'll just turn off everything and on my drive to work, I'll think about my game or a game that I'm working on or whatever, something, something game design related. And, I basically have the time between drive, getting into my car and getting to work to think about that. And so it's not, I mean, I guess there is a, a time limit, but in my mind, I'm not thinking, oh, I have 20 minutes. I just, more, it's more visual. It's like, oh, I see my uh, work building coming up, so I better better wrap this up. Um, but that's, that's definitely, uh, I think that's a very awesome, useful tool. Um, uh, the only like specific, that, uh, time frames I ever do to myself is usually uh deadlines in the in the sense of like um setting dates for things. Like I may say like uh okay by the end of this month I wanna have um the overall outline of how many cards this game is gonna have or or whatever. Um and it doesn't have to be right. It just needs to be I need to have a number. I need to come up with have something and then you know adjust it from there um yeah having having uh time constraints to think about stuff is really useful and and, and setting yourself deadlines and goals even small goals oh which reminds me one of the most important things that i my old boss at griggling games taught me and it, was, it goes back to what you said the scariest thing is a blank page there was one time when i first started working for him i didn't know what to do I'm working for a game company and I just didn't even know what to, what to start. And, um, cause we had a, we were just get, getting the whole company off the ground. It wasn't just game design. We were doing all kinds of the regular business logistics. And I, I really just didn't know what to start. And the most important thing that still stuck to me, stuck with me to this day was he said, to me, it doesn't matter what you do. Just do something. Start somewhere. Does it have to be the beginning of the game or the ending of the game? Just do something, whatever you're inspired to. You know, if you're inspired to just make one card today, then do that. Make that, make that card or, you know, make this mechanic or whatever. Um, and, and, and that stuck with me. And, and, and I often do that. Sometimes I have no idea where I'm going with something, but I'll just, whatever little ideas I do have, I put them out, jot them down. And, you know, kind of, it's kind of like, uh, like carving, carving a sculpture. You just, you don't know what exactly it's going to look like, but you're getting there. And then as you, as you whittle away, whittle away, then you start filling in more details and, and whatnot. Um, that's kind of my game design process. Yeah, that happens to me. Yeah, when I, when I hit a roadblock and a challenge that I do not know how to, how to overcome. And I might get into, yeah, analysis paralysis for that problem. And, um, when, when that happens, um, I really like to, to, to do two different things. The first one is work on something completely different, something that inspires me at that moment. 
Yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, instead of being stuck completely. And the other thing is also related to our topic today. It is um, looking at my design constraints and um, think about um, about them and how they can yeah can help me to answer that that question that I might have problems with. Um, and because um, maybe if I if I come back to 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 it and see um, a constraint that that really um, gives me an idea how to solve it. For example, if you um, if you what what you mentioned already that that if you have a problem and you try to come up with new rules and rules and rules and that complicates your game but your initial idea and constraint was to have a a short 5 or 10 minute game and all the rules that you add um extend your game length yeah that is not that is not helpful and you might um you might come back to to the to the conclusion that um you have to remove stuff instead of um yeah adding new rules to it so Ed, I really enjoyed our interview today. I think we we, we spent quite a good amount of time talking about that topic, and I, we came up with a with with great ideas. And I'm pretty sure it's helpful for for a few listeners out there. And, I hope um, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. It is. It was also helpful for me to think about it, all of it. And um, before we before we call it the show, I um I would like to ask you how people can find you and make sure that they, that they don't miss your Kickstarter launch. Okay, well, the most important thing right now is uh, if you want to know about the, if you want to even know about the game, know all the details, there is a website that I just launched. It's called animuscardgame.com. I'm sure we'll put that in, in the show notes. Um, everything you need to know about the game is there. You'll see a lot of art. All the art is done for the game, so you can see uh, a, a lot of it there. Um, and uh, the most important thing I can say is if you visit the site and you're interested in the game, please sign up with your email because I'm not going to be doing newsletters or anything like that. I'm simply going to, when the Kickstarter launches, that is going to be the list that gets notified. And so, um, you know, if you're interested and you want to know about it, and I'm also using that email list as kind of a way to gauge interest in the game. Uh, if three months go by and, you know, I've gotten like only 25 emails and well, maybe, maybe the interest isn't there or my marketing sucks. Or maybe I've gotten 3,000 emails. Um, but yeah, the biggest thing is is uh, uh, the website, animuscardgame.com. You check out the game. If you're interested, please subscribe. Yeah, and I mean, you at least have one email because I already subscribed. And um, yeah, I'm looking you did. forward. I saw that. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm um, yeah looking forward to to um, to see your game hitting Kickstarter. And um, yeah. Thank you for for being a guest on that show. It was a great discussion, um, and I wish you all the best for um, for Animos. Thank you, and you as well. Okay, listener, this was my interview with Ed Rodriguez, the designer of Animos, the draft building game. I I really hope you all enjoyed the interview as much as I did. Um, we learned today that constraints can yeah can act as a catalyst for innovation for. Um, experimentation and for creativity. Um, don't get caught in the habit of uh, yeah, solving problems by using um, the methods you already know. Get out of your comfort zone, start using constraints to, to your advantage and nerd like a boss. Goodbye everyone.